Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. Transit users in the Fraser Valley are scrambling to find commuting alternatives from Monday morning as limited job action by bus drivers in the area is about to escalate in a big way. As Travis Prasad reports, it's going to leave thousands of people with no way to get around. People who rely on the Fraser Valley Express bus that travels between Chilliwack and Burnaby are bracing for a rough commute next week. It's going to affect me uh, greatly. I live in Abbotsford. As a student, it is very useful for me. Yeah, I mean, if it's not working, then I don't know how could I go to the Vancouver. Starting Monday, all BC Transit buses in the Fraser Valley will sit idle indefinitely. Only essential handy dart service will continue for people with certain medical appointments. For me to be able to get to my job, I'm not going to be able to. So now I'm going to have to rely on paying you know, more money for an Uber or more money for a taxi cab. Workers are demanding improved working conditions, a pension plan and better pay, saying bus drivers in the Fraser Valley are paid 32% less than operators in Metro Vancouver. Bargaining talks between the bus drivers union and its U.S.-based employer First Transit have stalled. The only way that the strike will be called off is if we get a, a fair deal. The latest offer from First Transit is a five-year deal that would see wage increases of up to 16 percent. The employer would also add 15 full-time operator positions. The union says the offer falls short. We think that they can afford to pay our members a fair wage. We think they can afford to pay our members a pension, um, but they would prefer profits uh, instead of providing a, a good life or a fair wage to our members. Job action began last month, first with drivers refusing to collect fares, then with bus service stopping for two days. A full strike will bring the 13,000 daily bus rides down to zero. Last week I had uh, three appointments, physicians and stuff, and, uh, and I would have missed those if they were this week. It's probably going to inconvenience some people, but that's kind of the point of a strike. First Transit was not available for an on-camera interview. In an email, the company apologizes for the service disruption and says it's ready to resume bargaining. But with no further talks scheduled, it's unclear how long the buses will be parked. Travis Prasad, Global News. Now, the company that owns First Transit in the Fraser Valley, TransDev, is a large multinational corporation with operations in 19 countries. In Canada, the company says it operates more than 40 sites for communities, schools, businesses and others, with more than 4,500 employees and a fleet of more than 3,000 vehicles. Well, five weeks after a man was killed in Vancouver's Chinatown, police have made an arrest in the case. But it's shining more light on the province's problem of repeat offenders. Paul Johnson reports. Some closure for Chinatown. 
but some serious questions about the criminal justice system. There's no doubt that this uh, incident uh, created more fear, more anxiety uh, throughout that neighborhood. On February 6th, 32-year-old Nikolai Sugek was stabbed in Chinatown's Shanghai Alley. He stumbled a few feet out and collapsed and died nearby. Friday, Vancouver police announced second-degree murder charges have been laid against 30-year-old Jal Queth of Surrey. Police believe victim and alleged killer didn't know each other, and the motive is unclear. But also troubling was this. He is a repeat offender. He's committed several uh, crimes in his time. Uh, he has a long sheet of offenses. And that may have been putting it politely. If you pull up the record for the name Jal Queth, what you get is something you not only read, but scroll down through. For a mere 30-year-old, much of his life so far appears to have revolved around interaction with police and courts. What's happening right now isn't working. B.C. Liberal MLA and former Mountie Eleanor Sturko says it's time for a closer look at the problem of repeat violent offenders. While Canada's attorneys general recently returned from Ottawa with promises of reform of the bail system, Sturko thinks it's time for an independent third party to take a wider look at all the factors contributing to the problem of repeat offenders, which she says is pushing many British Columbians near to the brink of vigilantism to protect their communities. But when we see people with three pages of criminal history, with multiple convictions, you have to ask yourself where the deterrence has actually been. As for Queth, he was scheduled for a first court appearance for the murder charge Friday afternoon. His moment before the judge was arranged to happen over video link from another jail, where he was apparently being held for other charges. Paul Johnson, Global News. A 32-year-old man in Nanaimo is facing charges after a bizarre incident with a toy bow and arrow. According to RCMP, the man was threatening people in the parking lot of the Port Place Mall on Monday evening with the toy weapon that appeared to have a hypodermic needle attached. The suspect ran away when officers approached but was arrested after a foot chase and struggle. Adam Kajander has now been charged with assaulting a police officer, possession of a weapon, uttering threats and resisting arrest. Well, it's been nearly six years, but the trial of the man charged with first-degree murder in the death of 13-year-old Marissa Shen is finally moving forward. As Rumina Dea reports, jury selection got underway today. The trial is set to begin in two weeks. Serious questions have been raised about whether this case was in jeopardy because of potential unreasonable delays. The BC Prosecution Service now confirming the trial for Ibrahim Ali is set to begin April 3rd. Ali is accused of first-degree murder in connection to the death of 13-year-old Marissa Shen almost six years ago. Ali's trial had been postponed five times, according to reports. Publication bans are in effect on a number of pretrial matters, so we can't explain the reason for the delays. In general, bans can be imposed to protect the fairness of trial. Shen's body was discovered in Burnaby Central Park across the street from her home in July 2017. Hours before the teen's death, she was last seen in a popular coffee shop near Metrotown. The motive for the killing still unknown. A review of the evidence to date indicates Miss Shen's murder was a random attack. 
The community terrified. Homicide investigators identified more than 2,000 persons of interest. Then, after a controversial DNA technique used to narrow down a suspect of Middle Eastern descent, Ali, a Burnaby resident and newcomer to Canada, was arrested in September 2018, 14 months after Shen's body was found. Ali's been in custody ever since. The BC Prosecution Service anticipates the trial will last roughly two months, April 3rd to June 30th. Romina Dea, Global News. Last night, we told you about a White Rock strata dealing with an ICBC claim nightmare. It turns out they're not alone. Residents of a townhouse complex in Maple Ridge have dealt with two crashes damaging their property. The first they describe as a tough experience through ICBC. So when it happened again, they said, or they paid rather, a massive deductible and went through their own strata insurance just to avoid that headache. Imadagahi explains. When the entrance sign to a Maple Ridge townhouse complex was hit by a car and damaged in 2021, its residents learned the hard way that the cost to repair it would not be fully reimbursed by the driver's insurer, ICBC. So it was really a nightmare to get a settlement from them. And they, we ended up getting a smaller sign because they didn't want to cover the whole quoted price of the replacement of the same sign. Speaking of monopoly, they can make the rules. Well. I'm sorry, but I just think morally it's wrong. The same issue plaguing residents of a condo building in White Rock who are fighting with ICBC for the cost of fixing their building after a car crashed into it during a snowstorm last year. Their reimbursement from ICBC was short $6,000. For the second straight day, ICBC did not have a spokesperson available for interview. Its statement to Global News reads in part that it bases property damage settlements on the actual cash value, which includes depreciation, and that this is a standard industry practice for auto insurers. David Eby's ICBC no-fault plan actually makes it the fault of people who are hit and people who are injured and, uh, and homeowners and strata corporations. BC Liberal MLA Corinne Kirkpatrick says the policy needs to be updated. They've got quotes from um, different contractors in terms of how much that damage is going to cost and that is what they should be basing their reimbursement on. It's the actual cost of the repair to bring it up to the point that it was prior to the accident, not from what it was 40 years ago. It's frustrating. We don't think we should have to pay out of pocket for something that was damaged by a vehicle. You know, it wasn't, wasn't our fault. When the same thing happened to their fence last year, Brian Smith Strata decided it wouldn't bother trying to claim through ICBC again and instead were forced to pay the deductible through their own insurance, hoping that company may have better luck with ICBC. Emadagahi, Global News. Federal Conservative Party leader Pierre Poiliev is in Vancouver outlining his plan to help with the housing market. He wants to remove what he calls city gatekeepers, offering rewards for the cities who speed up the home building process. Richard Zussman has more. Setting up on Vancouver City Hall's front lawn, Pierre Poilievre sending the city a message. Get your house in order or get your housing money cut. A bureaucracy and red tape does not make for good communities. It actually makes for higher housing prices. If elected in the next federal election, a Poilievre conservative government would crack down on communities not building enough housing. 
requiring big cities to increase housing by 15% or face having federal dollars withheld, allowing residents to file NIMBY complaints for stopping zoning in certain areas and reward cities who build homes. Uh, cities like Vancouver that block housing construction with red tape will get fined as I will claw back their infrastructure money. The federal government punishing municipalities is a great idea. I mean, municipalities come to Ottawa and ask for money. Meanwhile, they impose a housing shortage on the whole country. One concern about the plan is it only includes big cities. In order to ensure everyone has access to that white picket fence or any other house, it must include all cities. But District of West Vancouver, which is maybe the most exclusionary, or District of North Vancouver, uh, you, the affluent suburbs, go right ahead and not allow any housing within your boundaries. The plan is also targeted at building density. A federal conservative government would require cities to pre-approve density around transit and sell off 15% of the federal government's nearly 40,000 buildings and turn them into housing. Our federal workers are often now working from home. Why leave these buildings empty? Let's convert them into housing. Great to see you guys. Housing is shaping up to be a crucial election issue. The Prime Minister also talking Housing Friday. Justin Trudeau promising to fast-track 100,000 new homes and promising rewards, but not necessarily punishment. The boldest plans resulting in the most housing units, especially affordable units, will be rewarded. While the goals are lofty, they also part on the big challenge, workers, as both Trudeau and Polyever look to find them to help build on their electoral chances. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The Prime Minister is addressing allegations the Chinese government interfered in last fall's Vancouver election. Justin Trudeau is making his first public comments after appointing a special rapporteur on Chinese interference. I think we have to be very, very careful when little bits and pieces of uncorroborated, unverified information get put out and people instantly react with perspectives and reactions that can undermine the ability of the duly elected mayor of Vancouver to do his job. And Premier David Eby has weighed in as well, saying he's concerned with recent reports of foreign powers interfering in Canadian elections. Eby has asked for a briefing from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service on the matter. Well, the foreign interference story isn't going away, and it appears to be having an impact on the Prime Minister's popularity. Let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on some uh, recent federal polling, Keith, and not looking good, depending on which polling you look at, not looking good for uh, the prime minister. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a series of polls in recent weeks show the gap between the Conservatives federally and the Liberals is starting to widen a little bit. Uh, but Trudeau's own approval numbers continued to decline. An interesting Pierre Poliev is here uh, today. Probably likes what he saw in an Angus Reid poll released yesterday, but not all of it. So here's drilling down uh, for the decided vote numbers. The Conservatives now have a significant lead of six points countrywide over the Liberals. The NDP in third place, the Bloc Québécois, and the Greens. But it's not all good news for Mr. Poliev. When it comes to approval ratings, for example, 
example. Uh, Justin Trudeau continues to lead and be ahead of Pierre Polyev in the approval ratings with the voters. And also, and this is critically important, the Liberals have a significant lead of decided voters in the riding rich areas of Metro Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. But good news for the Conservatives, their voter retention number, these are the number of people who voted Conservative last time who will vote Conservative again, is 87%, significantly higher than the Liberals. Bottom line, there seems to be growing fatigue with the Liberals, which is a concern to them, but they continue to hang on to the lead in the riding rich areas of metropolitan Canada. So right now, if an election were held today or next week, it's more than likely we still would not have a majority government. And even though the Conservatives have that lead in popular vote, they had the lead in the last election as well. It doesn't translate necessarily into enough seats to form government. Election's still a long ways away. Pierre Poulet still has a lot of work ahead of him, as does Mr. Trudeau in terms of regaining popularity with the voters. All right, thanks for that, Keith. Chilling new details in the shooting death of two Edmonton police officers. They literally knocked on the door and the, the, the guy just opened the door and started shooting. What we're learning about the deadly ambush and reaction from the community next on the News Hour. Coming up on the News Hour fallout from last month's explosion and fire in downtown Vancouver. Why BC Hydro is pulling the plug on two electrical vaults like the one that was destroyed. Plus, to this date, I got 2,930,000 tabs. Pop art. How an Alberta man turned 3 million soda can tabs into a stunning sculpture. That's later on the news hour. Right now, though, we are learning more about the killing of two Edmonton police officers Thursday morning and the timeline of the deadly incident. Immediately upon arriving outside the suite, both constables were shot multiple times by the 16-year-old male and were immediately incapacitated. Constables Brett Ryan and Travis Jordan were responding to a mother desperate for help with her 16-year-old son. But within moments, they were ambushed and gunned down. We're now learning more about who the young shooter was and hearing from shaken neighbors who saw the fallen officers before and after the shooting. It's a lot to take in. I really don't know how to process it yet, to be honest with you. Philip Dunn is one of the last to see Constables Travis Jordan and Brett Ryan alive. Dunn says he let the two officers into the Baywood apartment building early Thursday morning after they shined a flashlight into his suite. They thanked me for letting them in and they said, you could go back to your unit, sir. Don't bother about us. Uh, I went up the stairs. They turned off on the second floor behind me. And then before I even went back into my apartment, I heard shooting. Dunn went into his suite. I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back in my apartment. The, the police are on this. I'm not getting involved with that. And then next thing I knew, there was a huge police presence here. Like the, there was just a matter of minutes before they all showed up. So many police and so many stuff going on. Linda Felstead watched the scene unfold from inside her apartment. She saw the two officers being taken to hospital. Two policemen were carrying out a, a man, and we thought it was one of the, a bad man that they had like tied up. He was all crunched up and they put him in the back seat of the car and they took off. Now that she knows what happened, Felstead's thoughts are with the Edmonton Police Service family and the families of the fallen officers. They're both husbands and have families. Sad. Dunn says he had brief interactions with the 16-year-old who killed the two constables. He occasionally saw the teen sitting outside on the steps and simply describes him as quiet. Slavkornik, Global News. 
Penticton Council is considering a controversial new set of rules designed to give local bylaw officers additional authority to maintain safety in the city. As Jasmine King reports, while the concept isn't new, it's not one that's typically enacted in municipalities of that size. The real intent of this bylaw is to free up time for the RCMP officers to work on more higher level calls. The phones at the Penticton RCMP and bylaw office seem to always be ringing off the hook as both squads deal with an extremely high number of requests for their services. When you look at the the what's happening in Penticton and communities our size over the past five years is really unprecedented. Uh, problems that were typically big city problems are starting to come to smaller communities. In 2022, bylaw in Penticton responded to over 7,000 calls for service. Some of those calls can be completed by bylaw and community safety officers. However, other calls require RCMP assistance. The new bylaws will allow officers to take the next step without a police presence. This will really give um, the community safety officers the lawful authority to attend inside those kind of privately owned settings, but with public access. Uh, and that way they'll be able to respond, you know, get the person maybe connected to services, um, get them moved along. One of the proposals is to designate bylaw and community safety officers as peace officers, giving them additional authority to enforce bylaws and providing them with the legal protection against assaults. The new bylaws also propose officers could use force when necessary. It is really there as a worst case scenario that if they need to protect themselves and if they do have to use any defensive tools that they are trained and equipped um, to do that. City staff is also putting forward the Safe Public Places bylaw to increase community safety, which will regulate and prohibit certain activities people can do in public places, including where and how people solicit and loiter, similar to centers with higher populations in the province. Municipal authority that Vancouver's and, and Kelowna's have uh, around panhandling and around expectations in public and drug use in public, uh, they're embedded in their bylaws already. We don't have those same authorities. City Council is being asked to give first reading to the new bylaw next week, which will initiate a one-month engagement process. Jasmine King, Global News, Penticton. Up next on the News Hour, bathroom monitor. If somebody is inside a washroom and they stop moving, we will send an alert. The new sensors aimed at saving lives where they're already in use. Also ahead, concerning new research about what's in those food labels that you might be ingesting. Traffic is still slow northbound on the 91A to the Queensboro Bridge after clearing some earlier problems much earlier tonight. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $34 million. Lotto Max dreamed to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Queensboro Bridge. Island Health is testing out sensor technology to monitor for overdoses in washrooms. It's described as a sort of reverse motion sensor that comes into play when someone stops moving. As Kylie Stanton reports, the system has already saved a life. No loitering, no drug and alcohol paraphernalia in the open. The rules are clear but not always followed. Uh, no drug and alcohol consumption on the premises. And sometimes the consequences can be deadly. We ensure that we do uh, frequent bathroom checks. Um, we do frequent bathroom checks every 10 to 15 minutes. Now, for the first time on Vancouver Island, technology is being used to help monitor for overdoses. Welcome to your O-Detect washroom system. 
These motion detection sensors are now installed on a trial basis at six locations identified as high risk. They monitor movement and how long a person has occupied the washroom. If the room is in use and Odetect sees sudden stillness, it will start counting down. If they exceed the set time limit, a notification is sent via text message to designated responders on site. So of all, all those alerts has only been one time. We've, uh, the staff have actually had to enter into a, a door and that person was in medical distress and did need help. According to the University of Victoria's Safer Bathroom Toolkit, roughly 50 overdoses occur in bathrooms across BC every month. We got there printed circuit board in here, an antenna. But the technology developed by Brave Co-op isn't exactly widespread. There are only 98 systems currently in operation across the province, with another 110 on order. People don't want this to be a hidden thing. They want to keep their community and their friends and their loved ones safe and they accept that this is one of the ways in which we can do this. Island Health is set to become the largest user of the system, but admits the technology isn't the only solution. But we have to move the dial that individual substance use is a health issue. We have so many medical conditions that need interventions and this is an, another one. Still, with nearly 2,300 illicit drug toxicity deaths in BC last year, 386 of them occurring in the Island Health region, those on the front lines say a little help will go a long way. It is a huge commodity that uh, is a benefit to everybody. Kylie Stanton, Global News. The federal transport minister is announcing a $23 million investment to expand rail capacity in Surrey. Under the National Trade Corridors Fund, the money will go to Global Agriculture Transloading, Inc. Omar Algabra says the investment will help the systems operate more efficiently. These improvements will enable Global Agriculture Transloading to double their operations and help move agriculture product and grain between different modes of transportation more efficiently. It will also reduce delays and bottlenecks in the process, ensuring our, our agricultural products reach global markets faster and on time. The funding for the program is merit-based to help support economic activity in the country. Transportation Ministry says there is more than $4.5 billion allocated to the fund over 11 years until 2028. Up next, pulling the plug. Power outages are a frustrating experience and we apologize for the inconvenience. Why BC Hydro is taking two electrical vaults offline after last month's damaging explosion downtown. Also ahead, concerning new details about what's in your food we labels. Eat every day. What new research reveals that might be tough to stomach. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel, and after a very busy afternoon commute, traffic is eased off for the evening. BCAA member, save three cents on a liter on fuel at Shell, plus 10% off in-store purchases and car washes. Conditions apply. Visit shell.ca. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. BC Hydro says it's decommissioning two electrical vaults that are similar to the one that exploded in downtown Vancouver last month. As Kristen Robinson reports, the company insists its equipment is safe despite that decision. Repairs to the iconic marine building continue 
three weeks after an underground electrical vault exploded outside. This stretch of Burrard Street still closed. Brassfish Tavern, one of the only businesses able to stay open. It was a bit of a scary incident, and so we're just really grateful, too, that uh, the locations right in front of the vault were closed when it happened um, and that nobody in the restaurant was hurt as well. In late February, the electrical vault directly underneath J.J. Bean's sidewalk patio suddenly caught fire, injuring two people. As BC Hydro investigates what sparked the fireball captured on dash cam video shooting up to four stories high, the Crown Corporation is decommissioning the only two similar electrical vaults in the province, both in Vancouver. Our infrastructure is safe, but again, out of an abundance of caution, despite the fact that there is a low risk for a similar incident with these two remaining vaults, that abundance of caution is we want to go in and we want to remove that equipment while we await the results of the investigation. Crews are working to decommission one of the two vaults, which provides electricity to about 350 customers in the West End by this weekend. The other on Kiefer Street serves some 250 customers in Chinatown. It will be taken offline by the end of the month. The equipment in the Burrard vault was destroyed in the blast. Knowing that it could have exploded when we were walking by at lunch hours or just going to J.J. Bean is definitely nerve-wracking, so glad to hear that they're decommissioning the other two. We're all pretty happy to hear that they're taking precautions to make sure it doesn't happen again. BC Hydro insists what happened here was a rare occurrence, but doesn't expect to have more answers until the end of April. Customers served by the two soon-to-be-out-of-service vaults will be moved to another connection on the grid. Kristen Robinson, Global News. We're often told to read the label to get a better understanding of what's in our food. But new research is now raising questions about what's in the labels themselves. A McGill University study found the chemical BPS was contaminating food through its packaging, with high concentrations of the chemical being found in thermal food labels and lower levels in plastic packaging. Researchers say this is concerning, as growing evidence shows BPS is now seeing similar health effects to BPA, which is regulated for use in Canada due to a link to cancer, diabetes and fertility issues. There is no regulation for BPS in Canada, but the study suggests a more thorough look at the chemical. A special groundbreaking ceremony today in the Fraser Valley. Health Minister Adrian Dix was among those putting their shovels in the ground in Harrison Mills for a new Indigenous-led primary health care centre. The project is a part of a reconciliation agreement between the B.C. government and the Stahelis First Nation. The facility will serve both Indigenous and non-Indigenous patients. I want to welcome each and every one of you here in our, our, our beautiful home where we're going to start a much-needed work for health, well-being, not only for Stahelis, but all of our neighbours that, that, that live here. Reflects and reaffirms our commitment to long-standing reconciliation and collaboration with First Nations partners. It aligns with a commitment that we talk about and is um, talked about in big events and big meetings. But this is how it's realized on the ground. The reconciliation agreement also transfers 167 hectares of crown land along the Chehalis River back to the Stahelis and provides money to support Stahelis self-governance, economic initiatives and environmental stewardship. Just ahead, a new use for orphaned oil wells. 
For the most part, what we're taking is oil and gas building blocks and just rearranging them a bit. The new technology generating geothermal energy, next. And later tonight, decades of hard work and soft drinks. How millions of pop can tabs were transformed into art still to come. More than 170,000 orphan wells stand in testimony to the boom and bust cycle of Alberta's energy sector. But as Sarah often reports, some of those relics are now being put back to work to generate a much greener type of energy. For every energy boom and bust, a deep-rooted issue spreads across Alberta's landscape. Oil industry was in depression. The only growth industry was well abandonment. But almost a decade ago, it was in these orphaned oil and gas wells where John Redfern saw a hot new opportunity. Those are wells. They're going down you know, into the subsurface. Why don't we just turn them into geothermal wells? Why don't we generate geothermal energy? It works a lot like a giant radiator connecting 50 to 60 kilometers of well bores into a closed loop of water circulated using subsurface heat. The resulting Everloop borrows techniques from the oil sands. Technology perfected here like SAG-D, steam-assisted gravity drainage, multilateral drilling and magnetic ranging. For the most part, what we're taking is oil and gas building blocks and just rearranging them a bit. And while the idea started in orphan wells, the company says Everloops can be built anywhere. It's built test sites in sedimentary oil and gas basins like Rocky Mountain House and in traditional geothermal volcanic settings like New Mexico. Technology now on export with construction of the company's first commercial 300 million euro project currently underway in Germany. It's a validation of, from the EU that what we're doing makes sense despite... But a lot of people thought it was a little bit of a radical idea. How far you have to drill down depends on the location. On average, the temperature of the Earth rises 30 degrees with every vertical kilometer. Just three to five kilometers below the surface is enough heat, according to Ever, to create a lot of excitement for our energy future. What's the movie Armageddon when Bruce Willis saved the world by being a driller and drilling into the asteroid? This is almost as good. I'm waiting for the Hollywood version. Sarah Offen, Global News. Right, time to bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at our weather forecast. Halfway through spring break, Christy and the kids have had mm -hmm. some nice weather so far. Certainly the last couple of days have been fantastic. And we've got another one on the way. A heads up, anyone enjoying the great outdoors tomorrow, we will have a look at your avalanche uh, risk across the region. But it was a beautiful day today indeed. So let's look at some of these temperatures. 17 was the high in through Maple Ridge, 16 in through Langley. And we are expecting these temperatures to be a touch warmer tomorrow across the region. Uh, across Vancouver Island, a little cooler, but you can expect it to be a bit warmer. The biggest difference tomorrow will be in areas like Squamish and out through the Fraser Valley where you could be approaching that 17, 18 degree mark. Uh, in the interior regions, you can tack on another degree across these areas tomorrow with that sunshine that we're expecting. Now, we will see cloud cover across the south coast, maybe a sprinkle or two overnight early tomorrow morning, but that's going to clear out. We've got a nice southerly flow with that sunshine. We do have another system on deck, so I'll show you the timeline of that when we look at the five-day forecast. But first, here's a look at the avalanche danger rating. So for those of you in the 
the Columbia Kootenai region, we've got a considerable avalanche risk, and that extends over to the Alberta border as well as the North Coast coastal section. So a heads up for that. In terms of considerable avalanche risk, what that means is that you uh, natural avalanches are possible, but human-triggered avalanches are likely. So here's your, for, uh, your forecast for your day tomorrow. Yes, beautiful conditions across the region. And even at night, it's not going to cool off too much. In the interior, though, it will, down close to the freezing mark, but rebounding nicely during the day. Uh, 14 degrees in Nanaimo, and look at that, 18 out through the Fraser Valley, 17 in through Squamish tomorrow. The five-day forecast, you can see a change will occur on Sunday, so more cloud cover. And by Sunday evening, we'll likely start to see rain, and that will take us into our Monday. We change over officially to spring on Monday, which will be nice. And then uh, all of you off next week, it looks like we'll see some sunshine, thankfully. All right, tonight's Central Windows weather window coming to you from the Vernon area, just near Swan Lake. James Young sharing that with us with the cattle in the fields there. Great shot. I love that. Mm -hmm. So back to you. All right. Thanks, Christy. Barry Delay is in for Squire today. Squire's taking a rare day off. Apparently he is on a golf St. course Patty's somewhere. Day. Yeah. Or he's going to go to a big St. Patty's party. One of the two. Oh, I think you know which one it is. He's a partier. That's Squire. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What do you got for us? Uh, well, we're going to talk a bit of skiing. Cultus Lake uh, ski cross racer Reese Howden is on the cusp of winning another World Cup season title after winning the second last race of the year today. This is the biggest win of my season for sure, you know. I love this stuff. It's like the opening scene from a James Bond movie. We'll show you Howden's big win when we come back. Also to come tonight, Soda Can Sculpture, the Alberta artist behind this work of pop art. Whitecaps are getting their air miles in. Yes, Honduras Wednesday, fly all night to L.A., why not? Good place to jet be. Setters. They're jet setters, but they uh, got to get some points. They, they did win, of course, their uh, Champions League set, but uh, now time to switch back to MLS. Thanks, Sophie. The uh, Caps are in L.A. tomorrow facing the Galaxy after playing in Honduras Wednesday for Champions League. The Caps still have not won a league game yet, just one point from three games. They'll have all their regulars who didn't play Wednesday back in the lineup. In order to win, they have to capitalize on their own chances and be better on opposition uh, set pieces, which is causing Van Vancouver headaches. We are considering uh, thinking about uh, what we can do better because of course uh, uh, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to to understand that is probably been the our weakest part uh, in my opinion the only insufficient part so far of the team. Now, the Caps will play the other L.A. MLS team, LAFC, in the CONCACAF Champions League quarterfinals. Uh, Caps host Game 1 Wednesday, April 5th at BC Place. The return leg back in L.A. Tuesday, April 11th. LAFC won the MLS Cup last year, but Vancouver's had pretty good success against them over the years. Four wins, four losses, and three draws. 
Andre Kuzmenko scored his 34th goal of the season last night in the Canucks 3-2 loss at Arizona. That ties him with Pavel Bure for most goals by a first-year player. At age 27, Kuzmenko is too old for the Calder Trophy, so he's not considered a rookie. Bure scored his 34 goals in 65 games. Last night was Kuzmenko's 66th game, so he's right there with Pavel. Kuzmenko scored early in the first, tapping in a great feed from Anthony Beauvillier. That was Kuzmenko's only shot in the game. His league-leading shooting percent is up to 27.9, which is top 15 all-time and the best in the 2000s when the goalies got a lot better in the NHL. Kuzmenko's on pace for 41 goals in his first season with the Canucks. Two years ago, Reese Howden of Cultus Lake won the overall World Cup title in ski cross, and he could do it again tomorrow with a good finish. But in order to get in that position, Howden had to win the World Cup race this morning in Ontario. And it's at uh, Collingwood, Ontario. Reese Howden uh, takes the lead right from the start and never lost it. Howden wins his third race of the season, which puts him in great position to win the overall title with the one race left on Saturday. Howden has three wins, three seconds, and a third-place finish this year. You know, I, was, I haven't been this ner nervous for a race in a long time, and... Did a good job uh, suppressing it, but yeah, you know, this is all I wanted. I've been struggling kind of on the bottom end of the big finals the last few races. So happy, so proud. Uh, family's here. Mom, Dad, going to be so happy. Thank you. Good luck to him tomorrow. Meanwhile, some good success for Canadians in the women's final, also in Collingwood. Switzerland's Fanny Smith took the gold medal, took the lead, never gave it up. But Windermere's Courtney Hoppos would finish second for her first podium of the year. And Marielle Thompson of Whistler was third. She's had seven podiums this year, four silvers and three bronze finishes this season. Some more stuff from the snow. World Cup moguls from Kazakhstan. Canada's Michael Kingsbury in the finals and the huge favorite, of course. Kingsbury has already clinched the singles moguls title, which is his fourth world title. And today he won his 80th gold medal in World Cup. That is quite amazing. Tomorrow he could also win the world title in dual moguls. U Sport Women's Volleyball Nationals from UBC. Number one seed Trinity Western out of Langley in blue hosting Montreal's McGill Redmond. Spartans took control early. This is a game point in the opening set. Megan Mealy rolls in the spike, finds the opening. 25-16 to Trinity. They won the second set as well. McGill did take the third, but Trinity regained their form in the fourth. This is match point. And they take the fourth set easily, 25-13. So Trinity is moving on. They'll meet Dalhousie in the semis tomorrow. They won the 2022 championship with Trinity. Meanwhile, just underway, it's the host UBC Thunderbirds taking on number two Brock Badgers out of St. Catharines, Ontario. Hoping the hometown crowd can will them on. Uh, first set action, UBC down, but Akash Gruel with the nice tip at net to win the point. But Brock won the opening set 25-17, and they are in set two right now. That is it for sports. All right, thanks, Barry. Mm -hmm. Up next, taking the term pop art to the next level. Global BC is proud to partner with the Kara Hockey World Cup, March 19th to 26th in Richmond. Over 100 teams from more than 10 countries take the ice for the return of this week-long event. The 2023 Kara Hockey World Cup, in partnership with Global BC.
An Alberta artist is looking to sell his art made from millions of pop can tabs for a million dollars. After almost three decades of work, he's hoping to give half of the profit he'll make back to the community. Sierra Yaschuk has the story. His head is a little garbage pail, and then his arms were uh, the rain... Uh, rain pipes. It all started almost 30 years ago with a dream, recycled material and pop tabs. If I was younger, 30 years, I'd build a museum, a recycled museum. 84-year-old Doug Fibke started collecting tabs in the early 90s when he heard they could be used towards buying wheelchairs for needy children, but was soon discouraged at how many it would take. Went to bed that night. You know, I don't know if I was sleeping or if I was still awake. But all of a sudden, it was like a vision of a farm scene. In the morning, Fibke reimagined the farm vision and said, that's it. If I have a million tabs, I'll make a farm scene. Soon, the farm scene came to life as the tabs just kept coming in. Now, to this date, I got 2,930,000 tabs, plus a few. All put together to make a barn, a horse and fence, complete with a lasso, a pig, and what farm wouldn't be complete without a tractor? The tractor hood comes off. And a less traditional farm machine, a spaceship. Little, little guys, they used to build a base, a spaceship, you know. I know it's got nothing to do with a farmyard, but now we tell the little guys that say a spaceship that he had a problem and he had to land someplace. That's what I tell them now. <laughs> There have been some inquiries from hotels in Las Vegas, even Dollywood, about purchasing the scene. It just never quite lined up properly. But now, Fibke is more than ready to sell and pass it on in more ways than one. We'll just keep enough that we can live on, and then the rest, you know, will go to charity. Fibke hopes his artwork will be appreciated for years to come and thanks God for blessing him with such a vision. He gave me the means of getting all the tabs, and he gave me the patience to put it all together. Sierra Yaschuk, Global News. Oh, yes. I said a lot of people drank a lot of pop for that, but then my director pointed out, or beer. Probably get more or beer, beer tabs at my house than pop. But. <laughs> anyway, pretty cool-looking self, sure. Uh, Christy, final word on the weather. Yeah, thanks. So, so happy St. Patty's Day to everyone. Tomorrow we've got another great day on the way. We certainly will see cloud cover in the morning, but that will trend towards sunshine. 14 to 17 degrees across Metro Vancouver, 18 out through the Fraser Valley. So those are some of the warmest temperatures we've seen so far this year. So pretty nice for a Saturday. Get out the sunglasses. All right, that's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for joining us all. Good night. Good night.